0: Hi Internet! I'm Andromeda Yelton and this is the first episode of Open Paren where I talk to awesome people in library land and beyond who are into code. I hope some of them will be beginners and some of them will be experts and they'll be working on all kinds of problems and it will be super fun. Uh, Today I'm super excited that our first guest is Cecily Walker a librarian too at the Vancouver Public Library as well as a member of the editorial board of in the library with the lead pipe and an upcoming keynote speaker at DLF forum which I wish I could go see but sadly oh. is on the other side of the continent from me <laughs> um, but yeah we're gonna talk to Cecily about stuff that she does in code and greater technology um, Let's see, you know, the first thing I want to ask you uh, is indirectly your fault because you got me totally addicted to the podcast that I'm ripping it off from, which is what do you do and why?
1: What do I do and why? Um, I'm a librarian at Vancouver Public Library. It says in my Twitter profile, tech, not books. Um, and um, so what I, well, it's, it's weird. I'm kind of in a limbo right now because I'm on medical leave. Um, and right before I went on medical leave, I was in a temporary job. Um, and, and that job was to be the librarian uh, in charge of community digital initiatives. And that was Vancouver Public Library's really fancy way of saying digital humanities projects. Um, and so I was in charge of that project or that portfolio for about eight months. Um, before that, I was the librarian in charge of websites and online engagement. So that meant that I was in charge of all of EPL's public-facing websites, um, web properties, and their social media channels. And I did that for about, oh gosh, um, I did it at as, the as, as supervisory level for about... Roughly three years um, on and off and before that I did it for five years as an entry-level librarian, so um, I've pretty much worked in the same department since I got to VPL um, But um, I kind of walked away from my web services job um, Because I was a little burned out to be perfectly honest, and uh, I am now in a situation where um I know what's next, but it's temporary, and I don't know what's going to come after that. So when I go back to work in three weeks, um, I think I will be working on a job um, primarily concerned with our Islandora repository, which is where our digital humanities projects will be living. Uh, but after that, who knows? <laughs> Well, so one
0: of the things that I've always really liked about your tech work is that you are always taking on new things and trying new stuff and maybe being super excited about it and failing uh, at a whole lot of them <laughs> right because well that's that's how you learn right um but I know when we were talking before uh, the episode you mentioned that learning was a particular interest of yours so I have a lot of questions I could ask about that because I love teaching people how to code. Um, but I guess I'll start with, it sounds like you're about to take like an, a flying leap into learning a new tech stack. Um, so in that or in addition to that, like what are you looking to learn next? What's the tech thing that has you excited about learning right now?
1: Oh, my gosh. There's so much that I don't really even know where to begin. Um, I took... Um, I took part in in the Skill Crush, they call these career blueprints, and they had one career blueprint that was all about front-end development with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And then they also had, which I kind of know, but I don't know enough to feel like, If somebody asked me to do something in JavaScript and jQuery that I could just whip it up like that I could probably do it with some research um, But that's more of a confidence thing and more about me than it is about what they were teaching and but anyway I'm getting off the track Um, the (laughs) other um, Career blueprint that they had was a Ruby developer Ruby and rails and there is something about Ruby even though I will frequently like Swear on Twitter about how much Ruby is making my life a living hell <laughs> there was Something about it that made sense to me and I had seen some things very early on in my career at BPL That the New York Public Library was doing with Ruby um, One of the things that they did that I got really excited about and this was several years ago now So I mean it's probably all old phone, but they had done a thing where <clears throat> when you got to their website They had uh, a survey and the survey would say, would you mind if we asked you one question? That was it. That was, that was the barrier. That was the entry point. And then after you asked that one question, the survey would say, well, if you have time, can we ask you one more? And after every time you answered a question, it would just engage people in that very friendly kind of way. Like, we're, we don't mean to bother you, but we're, you know, it's only one other question. Um, and they had done that. They designed that so well. That they were overwhelmed with responses. They huh. could not have dreamed how many responses that they got. They got so many that they had to, they had to stop the survey. Um, because they had des- they had designed it that way. And at the time, um, I was the user experience, doing more of the user experience of things at the library. And I was really excited about trying to do something like that to gather some research about the public website. But the developers, um, the web application developers that we had at the time, they didn't know Ruby. And they didn't really have the capacity to try to pick it up because they weren't just the web application developers. They were responsible for keeping all of the applications, whether it's accounting or cataloging, you name it running in the library and there were only two of them. Um, so they just didn't have the capacity. I really wanted to learn it and I felt bad at the time that I couldn't, but I kept coming back to it and I kept saying really neat things that people were doing with Ruby and with Rails. Um, and I just thought I'd give it a try. And even though it frustrates me, I, I really like it. And I think this is probably the only programming language that I've stuck with for any length of time. I don't consider HTML or CSS a programming language but this is the only sort of real honest to goodness programming language that I've stuck with with any uh, amount of time. So hopefully I won't give it up yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, tried to learn Ruby a number of times and actually I might be doing a project in Ruby for people for money soon. I was very explicit that like, I will do your project if you understand that I will be learning Ruby along the way and I will like cut my rates because of that. Um, (laughs) But if you're cool with the fact that I don't know what I'm doing, I can do your project. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've bounced off Ruby a bunch of times before and I'm only like just starting I think to sort of get into the zen of (laughs) it.
1: <laughs> yeah the one of the projects that skill crush had was to build a um a weather forecasting and uh for your comfort that you uh, and the code is up on github if anybody wants to look at it and so i built a little forecasting engine where if you enter the name of your city or if you enter your postal mm-hmm. or zip code it would give you your current conditions and it would give you the forecast for the next five days and it's something that's such a like it I mentioned that now and anybody who's a more seasoned developer would look at that and go, you basically built the equivalent of fizzbuzz, but I'm really excited about it because I built it and right. I sweated over it for so long. I slogged over this thing for like, uh, Skill crush says that generally their task will take anywhere from two to ten hours to complete. I think it took me two weeks to get this. And um, when I finally got it to run, I was just I was so excited and so pleased <laughs> that I finally made it work. So yeah, I think yeah. I, I think that might be it. Well I think that's like that's one of the critical sort of emotional
0: skills that that people need to be successful at learning is you have to have that feeling of this is awesome that, that makes the reward for the weeks of this sucks and I don't know what I'm doing because yeah everyone's going to have those weeks. Possibly yeah. repeatedly over and over on end.
1: <laughs> so when you're talking about learning, one of the things that I think that I would like to learn is how to think like a programmer because clearly I don't. Um, I, don't, I, don't I don't think I think like a programmer at all. I don't think... In, in linear, clear steps for, for a solution to a problem. I always come at a, at a solution to a problem from around the corner, which mm-hmm. it can be a hindrance when you're trying to do development work. So I don't know if you have any ideas about that. I'd love to hear them.
0: Man, I think I mostly have angry ranting about that, honestly, because I felt like that for so long. Like, I don't think like a programmer. Um, my undergraduate degree was in math, and I don't think like a mathematician. Um, I I was really good at math <laughs> um, but I didn't approach it the same way as most people in my program did and I couldn't engage in conversations about math in real time because there's this like incredibly cognitively demanding translation step from like how I actually think about math to ways that I could admit, admit in public to thinking about math that like wouldn't be stigmatized yeah. <laughs> or like doing my homework. I'd be like, okay, I, I see like how this goes. And that was 10% of the time. And then 90% of it is like, how do I write it down in a way that I won't fail? Which yeah. was you know, soul-crushing, and when you're 19, you're like, oh, it's me. And no, it's not me, and it's not you, right? It's like yeah. there, there, are, there are different ways to think that are legitimate, and one of the things I really enjoyed about um, this library technology report I wrote recently about librarians who code is uh, this this quote of Misty DeMeo's that I just like, like keep coming back to you, right, that... that um, She read Wise, Poignant Guide to Ruby. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: the line that stuck with her was something about how programming, you would be writing stories for a machine. Yeah. And that worked for her. And that that sort of storytelling narrative mode is not what you see when you see people talking about thinking like a programmer. But air quotes, like, (laughs) programmers have lots of different minds. And what I realized that, in fact, I also think in a sort of narrative way. And if I'm going to... I'm gonna write a program. I sort of start with like telling myself the story and comments and pseudo code, mm-hmm. and then slowly transforming that into code until in- it is broken in interesting ways, and then fixing it. And you know, it's I can be very logical and I can like emulate logic really effectively because math major, but I- I'm not Spock in my head, and I feel like you're supposed to be like that in your head yeah. and be like cool, but you don't have to be I think I think for me learning how to think like a programmer has been a learning how to like kick to the curb the ideas about how I was supposed to think because I don't think that way um and b learning how to leverage the skills I do have um I'm not super like step-by-step propositional logic in how I think yeah But I am good at getting, like, intuitively to the big picture solution with, like, blinding speed and then having to figure out how to write that down.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But,
0: you know, you take your cognitive strengths and you make that the core of how you make programs work. (sighs) I think reading Test-Driven Development, the the Obey the Testing Goat, Harry Percival's book, that helped for me. Your mileage may vary. and just doing it long enough that there were things that were easy, so I didn't yeah. have to be stuck on those, you know? Yeah. That's that's the awesome thing about the weather program, right? The, the point isn't that you wrote a weather app. The point is that you fought through things that used to be hard until they became easier, and now you can build on them and do more. Yeah. Yeah. You know?
1: That's true. So what,
0: would you recommend Skill Crush to people who are learning? Because people ask me I absolutely
1: would. That. And the reason, the number one reason that I would recommend Skill Crush is, <laughs> it's a very practical reason. Um, once you pay for your blueprint, whatever it is, and they have a wide variety of blueprints, you have access forever. So the blueprint, you can either pay, I think it's something like, Three hundred ninety-nine dollars up front, or you can parcel it out like over three payments of like one hundred and fifty dollars or something. But once you've paid, you have access to your content and their content forever, and that's something that a lot of online, um, a lot of online programs don't do. The more, uh, you know, the more typical model is that it's a monthly charge, and you know, you go in when you can, um, and then when you don't have can, if when you when you can't go in or you know your life gets in the way. Um, very few of these programs will allow you to pause your enrollment. There are a few that do, but, you know, they'll continue to keep charging you whether or not you use the system or you're actually learning anything. So that was the thing that I liked about Skill Crush the most. I also really like that even though they, um, they seem to emphasize it less in their written materials, if you go to their website, you can tell that they're, they're targeting women. Um, and, and all of their branding and everything that they put out, um, you know, on their website, in their newsletters, um, they are always interviewing women who have either completed their various blueprints or women that are working in the tech sphere in a variety of ways. Um, and they, they make a point of doing these <clears throat> free on-air seminars or these free uh, hangouts. Um, with prominent people in the industry um, who can come in and talk about anything, whether it's about building your business, like teaching people actually, you know, biz dev skills, or teaching people things about, you know, how to crack in, how to crack the ceiling in tech or what what have you. And they make these things all free and available to people. Um, and they the way that they break down their courses is that if you can carve out ten minutes a day, you can really progress. Now the 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 skills or the the tests that they'll give you at the end of the the big module will take you more than ten minutes but literally everything that you go through every single part or chapter the way that they organize it will really only take you ten minutes Um, and it's open it's personable they are really approachable Um, the CEO I guess um, of skill crush she personally answers email Um, And they also use the Mighty Bell uh, online community Mm -hmm. as a way of keeping people who are enrolled in the various blueprints connected to each other so that they can support each other. So it's sort of like a chat thing, but they keep it running. So if you'd like for me, I joined one of the blueprints in like 2014 or something. And if I wanted to go in, and hang out in the chat room for people who were in my cohort, they would still be in there. And there are people who have you know, either progressed or people like me who just kind of paused, but there are people who went through the program at the same time as you did. So you can still keep those connections open or you can just pop in into any of the hangouts for people who are going through the blueprint now. So in case you wanna offer support to people who are going through it now. Um, it's an excellent program, and I recommended it to so many people. Um, mm-hmm. I can't, and I I spent so much money on online learning from everything from Treehouse to Lynda.com to Drupalize me you name it. Um, and Skill Crush is probably is the one that I would recommend wholeheartedly, above mm-hmm. and beyond any others.
0: Wow, that's that's really impressive to me about the the cohorts and the email because it's always seemed to me the hardest part of online tech teaching is building the, the community and also just the emotional skills, right? Because if, yeah. you're, if you're taking a face-to-face course and you're frustrated, you don't have to stay frustrated for super long because maybe your instructor's right there in the room and they look over yeah. your shoulder and they're like, oh, a semicolon or whatever, and, and you're not frustrated anymore. But with online courses, people can just be like, "Oh, I'm spending a week not knowing what I'm doing, and there's no support, and I feel terrible, and I, I yeah. go away." You know, it's, that's. Impressive. I mean, there's a
1: there's a little bit of that which you can't really help when people are in different time zones around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have posted something in the middle of the night um, <laughs> out of frustration, and there's somebody there, like, or I'll get wow. an answer just a couple of hours later. So, wow. how big yeah. are the cohorts? Um, I don't know if they limit it to a certain size. I think the the, the, the first one that I was in, in the front-end development, was something like 30 or 40 people. Hmm. But I don't know that they'd limit it by size. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's striking to me that that would be enough people to generate that
1: speed of response. Ah. Yeah, or maybe yeah. those are just the thirty or forty people who checked into Mighty Bill because you aren't obligated to check in and participate mm-hmm. in those the in, in the chats or anything. They're there for you to help you, and some people like doing that kind of stuff, and some people really hate it. So <laughs> there were thirty or 40 30 or forty of us who were really really active.
0: Hmm, that's really neat. It's sort of one of the problems that is that that's bugged me is like how do you build that community, especially because the librarians, like as you were noting, many. Workplaces that have librarians who code don't have more than like one or two of them. Yeah, and don't have Much or any time during the workday, which is a whole other rant is like so you're benefiting from people acquiring these skills But you're not going to support them getting them and that, eh, That's a problem, but yeah, but it does mean that people need to have Online learning communities because they may simply not have any other options,
1: right? Um,
0: Which is a problem that, that, I mean, that's really a lot of the problem that got me into, like, how do you teach librarians to code? Because the, the emotional problems are often harder than the technical ones.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's another reason why something like, God, I feel like this has turned into a commercial for Skill Crush, but um, one of the things that I really liked about them is that it worked around your schedule. Like you didn't have to be in a certain place at a certain time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody like me who lives with a chronic illness, I just never know from day to day and sometimes from hour to hour how I'm going to feel. Mm -hmm. So doing something like a code club hangout, for example, I might agree to it and then when I get down to the day, I can't do it, but Skill Crush Mm -hmm. is always there. And so if I have those 10 minutes, I can just go in and sit down do those 10 minutes. If I have a question, I can pop into Mighty Bell and somebody will be there or I'll get an answer in a short amount of time. So it's just the flexibility. I've never found anything that has that, that kind of flexibility and that kind of attentiveness where you can be assured that somebody's on the other side of the computer.
0: Hmm. And it's pedagogically remarkable to me that they can have 10-minute chunks that are useful, but in the yeah. interest of not just being a commercialist. So yes, much, I'm sorry. Um, no, I mean, that's great, because I'm super, I know that a lot of people are always asking me, like, how do you learn, and what are good resources, so I'm totally glad to have another one on the list. But let's talk about a different, like, code learning <laughs> community, because I know you've done some stuff with MapTime, and I know basically nothing about who they are or what they do, and I'm really curious. So tell me about MapTime.
1: Um, MapTime is an organization that is, uh, that was created to make, GIS which I really can't think of what it stands for geographical information systems science (laughs) Um, More open and amenable to all kinds of people So I like to think of it. They they call themselves a knitting circle for maps So what they would do is they would hold meetups and they would either be around teaching you a specific skill like how to use OpenStreetMap to develop a particular map. That's just a, 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 a sort of kind of, this is an example. Um, and they would just sit, they would just set up. And if you have your own computer, you can just come in and sit down and just learn. No pressure whatsoever. Um, and as you went, To more of their events. They tried to make their skill sets or the the sessions that they would do to just sort of ramp up and build on the one that was previous. That wasn't always possible. Um, But the thing that I really liked about map time is that if you were just somebody who expressed an interest and you didn't have to have like a geography or a GIS background at all, because I certainly don't. Um, I was trying to work on building a map for a project that we were doing at VPL and I figured out how to do it by using a, a code sample that I found on GitHub from Lizzie Diamond, um, and who is really, really into, uh, or was, I don't know if she still is, who is really involved with MAPTIME, but she went to, um, she was a Code for America fellow, I think, in this last year. Um, Anyway, so it's, um, I had to step down from MAPTIME because there's a lot going on for me personally, like health-wise, and I just didn't have the energy to do it anymore. But essentially, it's kind of like, It's part meetup, it's part knitting circle, it's part code club, um, and it's also a really great social opportunity because it gets you in that space where you're sitting across the table from someone face-to-face who has knowledge and wants to share it, and they want to do it in as – I guess, low barrier kind of environment as possible. So nobody's really saying anything like, oh, this is really stupid. Everybody is super supportive and it doesn't matter what your level of skill is with with geography or GIS. If you want to learn how to build a map for your own personal reasons, if you want to learn how to build a map of, you know, how many times you've encountered unscooped dog poop in your city and you (laughs) can get that kind of open data from your city, <laughs> um, you know take that you can take that into map time, and they can show you how to build a map of it so Uh, It's a really really cool organization. They're online at Maptime.org So if you would like to find out more about them or see if they're in your city There's so many Maptime chapters around the world not even just around uh, North America and anybody can start one so if anybody out there has an interest in learning anything like about JavaScript open notation or JSON or wanting to learn how to build a map or Wanting to learn how to do data visualizations Maptime is the place to go
0: Huh. Now I'm really wondering if uh my city, which has a great deal of open data, has information about dog poop in their data sets. <laughs> so they've got a lot, but that's uh that's that's very granular.
1: <laughs> I I dog poop was maybe a bad example. They they do have one of the, the 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 maps that I've seen that I really liked a lot is somebody um took the um the pet license database um and they they isolated dogs and they did a map of new york city of the most popular dog names in certain neighborhoods in new york city (laughs) could you just like totally tell where brooklyn was just oh yeah. there are lots of (laughs) there are lots of ellas and stella's and bellas and that sort of thing so. (laughs) (laughs) so like
0: popular girls names yeah so their, their pets are like their babies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, I was also curious in terms of projects more generally. Um, who do you think is doing the coolest projects in greater library land tech these days? Or which projects do you think are just like awesome?
1: I, I, oh. I feel like I haven't really been paying much attention because I've just been up my own rear end for so long, but there is a project, I wish I could remember the name of it, so I might just take a second and go and look it up. Um, give me a second. We can edit this out, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Okay. Uh, speaking um, of learning, I have
0: no idea how audio editing works, but maybe oh, I'll right. figure that out um, in the next 24 hours. a project hours.
1: that I, I found out about when I was doing some research into digital humanities um, when I decided, to do the co-present this keynote with uh, with Chris, um, I was reading. Miriam Posner's blog, and Miriam oh, man, is yeah. somebody who's really, really um, well known in the field of digital humanities. And she wrote this; um, she put up the notes from her keynote, or the text of her keynote, and it was a blog post that's called "What's Next: The Radical Unrealized Potential of Digital Humanities." And it's a I fantastic- totally have
0: that in my notes to ask yeah. you about. <laughs> um,
1: and because you and I had had a conversation about this, wow. and one wow. of the things it's that totally she talks around. about yeah. is that, you know, maybe the field of user experience. Um, is doesn't allow people to critically engage with the, with the data that they're saying, And maybe the point isn't to always make things easier. So she mentioned um, a project called and I'm looking for it now hold on just a second. It's a really long, okay. It's a project called The Knotted Line and it's it's a, ti- a timeline but it's a timeline like no other timeline like I've seen. So it's the, the subject is about the history of confinement in the United States, whether that's from, you know, you're dealing with enslavement or you're dealing with like, you know, the prison industrial complex, you, what have you. And um, through a series of paintings and historical tidbits, you can go through this timeline and try to discover um, information about, you know, particular historical events. But the timeline isn't linear. Um, It's 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 it loops around itself Um, It's reversed. So where you think that you're starting at the beginning. You may actually be starting at the end and people were so Frustrated by this interface that You know they were like well if, if it's making me have to work this hard To use this interface then why should I try and the developers said that the point of the entire project. Was to show how difficult it can be for people of color or other marginalized people to try to navigate these structures that aren't created for them. So they're trying to navigate, you know, the the police system, or they're trying to navigate the legal system, or they're trying to navigate, you know, getting aid from the government, what have you, and all of these kind of structures that are essentially built to keep marginalized people out, and the levels of frustration that marginalized people have to deal with every day. So they design the interface intentionally to be confusing, to throw up barriers, to help people think critically about their position in the world and how the privileges that they enjoy are equally equally available to everybody else. Now, there are some people who think that this is successful, and then there are some people who think this is a really crazy idea. I loved the idea of trying to take an interface or trying to take a system and design it in such a way that makes people really critically look at and engage with their position within the system. To try to just look at it from the perspective of I'm not just neutral you know, I don't bring anything to the table because most so many people think that technology is neutral. Um, To get people to realize that no, there's nothing neutral about it. And you know, whatever advantage you have, no matter how small, um, is something that may not be available to everybody else. And then what can you do as somebody who's a technologist when you're designing these, designing technology, not necessarily to design it to a degree that it's going to be so confusing, but what can you do as a technologist when you're designing systems to try to incorporate different ideas, different perspectives, different experiences so that people who are coming at your system um, from, you know, and they're bringing their own baggage to your system, that they can be successful in such a way, but without dumbing it down. So for people who may be a little bit more or, um, who have a little bit more means or who might be a little bit more technologically proficient, maybe make the system intentionally a little bit harder so that they'll feel a little bit more challenged. Whereas people who don't necessarily have those means, how can you design the system where they feel like that they can get through and be successful but that, that, that they're not being pandered to? So it's that kind of critical engagement with technology that I get really, really excited about rather than just always harping on or preaching the gospel of ease of use or don't make me think, which is something that the, the book by Steve Krug that a lot of people talk about, but to, to get people to think again and think about their position as technologists who are designing systems um, and, and what that means.
0: And you have a user experience background as well, if I yeah. recall correctly, right? So that yeah. that must have been sort of like... My head just, me just me. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, dogma. Did you have any like interfaces in your head that you're wanting to build now as as a result of these
1: ideas well one of the things that the uh the projects that i was working on before um, i went on medical leave um one of the digital humanities projects that i was working on was a project um to digitize which essentially means photograph um these quilt panels that um commemorated the lives of Missing and murdered women from down, Vancouver's downtown east side. Um, essentially, there were women who were there were there were street involved. Some of them were sex workers. Some of them um, were drug users, um, and they either ended up missing or they turned up dead at a pig farm outside of Vancouver. Oh. Um, and oh, and and not like intact. Like their remains scattered everywhere, and so. Uh, the story of these women, as it gets told in the popular media, is is only about um, their street-involved life, you know, the bad things that had happened to them, and how they had had run-ins with the police. And when um, people who were from the downtown Eastside community wanted to do something to commemorate the women. The only photographs that they were getting from the police were mugshots, And they were saying that they don't want these women to be remembered this way. So what they did was they came up with a panel, uh, a program that was very similar to the AIDS quilt, where they had um, friends, family, loved ones, or members of the community to get together and have sewing circles. And they taught people how to sew, and they made these 18 by 24 inch quilt panels. Um, to commemorate the women's lives. And so that was a project that I was working on, and we were working on photographing those panels and trying to come up with a way to display this information. And, you know, we could do it in... As information professionals, we're bound by certain... I don't know, responsibilities. We have to make sure that um, the collections that we put online are easy to search, that they're easy to scan, um, that people can easily find the information that they need. But one of the things that I was trying to get my team to think about was how else can we display this information in such a way so that people don't look at it as, this is something that something bad happened to, how can we, also develop an interface that somebody could either toggle on and off, um, that would be more of a narrative thread, that would actually be more of a, that would connect these people in terms of the stories of their lives. Um, Are there some things that we can do with, and we consulted with Um, and have members from um, various First Nation communities in the the Vancouver Lower Mainland area advising with us on the project um, to say, are there certain traditions that you can help us with as a partner with us on this project um, that maybe me as somebody who's not Aboriginal wouldn't have access to? how can, how else can we tell these stories so that it's more resonant and relevant to people and that, you know, people don't just look at it as, you know, fancy pictures on the internet. And um, unfortunately, that was when I had to go on medical leave, just when we were starting to to dig into that. But I'm looking forward to going back to work in about three weeks and seeing where we've come from that point um, since I've been away for two, almost two months. Um, But just the idea of when you are creating a collection that targets a specific community, is there a way that you can design an interface that has meaning? What does that meaning actually mean? Like how can you make it be something that goes beyond like putting, uh, you know, designing it in colors or putting images that, um, you know, the, the stereotypical First Nations images that you might see. Is there another way that we can present this information in a critical way to tell these stories? But because we're a public library, we also have to be really careful about not politicizing it. But I don't know how you can tell these stories without politicizing it. So it's making us try to be creative um, and it's making us have to um, really challenge our own perceptions um, and the own biases that we're bringing to the table um, and to try to consider things from, you know, a perspective that you may not have had. And so it's been great for us to go out into the community um, and have them sit down with us and advise us on the project from every step of the way. Um, So, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what we come up with. And I know that there will probably be you know, some pushback, but we'll see what we can do. We'll see if we can make it so that it's not just your typical online gallery where you go, oh, there's a picture, that hmm. there's actually something a little bit more meaningful there.
0: I take it this is not online yet.
1: No, so, not like, yet. Like,
0: eagerly await seeing it.
1: because oh, I will I will publicize you know, it as soon oh, as it's yes. available.
0: <laughs> I mean, this, this got at so many of my favorite questions about technology because to me it's like the ethical issues are unavoidable. I don't know how people write code without tripping over some sort of issue of what what values am I encoding just like constantly because it's always yeah. there. And I was I was I was talking in a panel um, last week where one of the things I was talking about was like absences in metadata, right? We have these schema and I made fun of Dewey, right? Cuz like the two hundreds are basically like two hundred through two nine or two eighty Christianity and like two nineties everything else, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and it's it kind of puts you in a bind, right? Because if if you want to have make a system, a computational system that can engage in computational conversation with other systems, you. You, you have to tell your story in terms that are recognizable to, like, the broader data ecosystem, but that may not be a story that is actually... An honest reflection of of the participants
1: experiences at all and that that may be a scheme that leaves no space for like when you're looking at a mark record and you're doing cataloging and you know you know (laughs) I don't ask me what the field number is but you know you can have a special field to add some additional data that might have more resonance um, to like your particular community but it's a special field it's It's not the first thing that's going to come up right so um, even though we're making we're we're making room but we're not we're not putting people at the center and what i'm more interested in is if as librarians as technologists if we are going to continue to try to not that we're going with our hands outstretched but we kind of are but if we're going to continue to want to make and 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 to build these partnerships with the communities that we serve um, we need to make sure that they are at the center that you know the the kinds of data structures that we've put into place um may not necessarily work and we need to try to come up with other structures where we can put people at the center that they're not just a special field
0: yeah david weinberger i guess was uh in the q a after the panel he was mentioning that there are you know authors in tibet who the, the person of whom they are a reincarnation is an important part of the author field. And again, you can put that in Mark in like a special note, but there's no structured way yeah. to recognize and represent that. It's it's an add-on, it's an appendage, you know, and it's there's, there's no way to make it central. Right. Yeah. There was a article I was reading the other day is by, uh, I think, Stephanie Fu, who's in public radio, and it's basically like... <laughs> y'all say you want to have diversity like this is what you need to do right and and one of the things she was mentioning in there is that you know there's the Diwali story or whatever that shows up at the appropriate time of year but it's it's <laughs> this is my cat Shazam he likes to be included anyway um <laughs> he's gonna try pushing my laptop off my desk and his tail's gonna be like in the way and his butt and stuff anyway but, but what she was saying is you know that these stories often they don't meet the standard of journalism that in general we would expect stories to meet it's like the fact that it has Diwali does not make the story it needs to have characters and conflict and those things that journalists would look for in any other story and she wants to hear stories that happen to have all sorts of different people and cultures but that are are really going after journalistic excellence in that same way and I feel like that's that's kind of what you're talking about. It's really? like, you pictures, you, you want to find like who, who are the people, who are the stories, who
1: are the conflicts and, and issues that were very particular in there. I mean, it, it goes back to the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately about how there's been a lot of talk online about diversity in library and information science. And it's like, it's great, but all we're basically doing is trying to fit people into the system. Again, we're trying to fit people into a system that was not designed for them, that was basically set up for them to fail. And is that fair? Or should we be looking at a way to radically redevelop the system so that it's equitable to everybody? And no matter what you bring to the table, it's not a liability, it's a strength. Um, and that can only help us be better so it's it's a very very similar idea
0: so how I think I'll make this the last question because I don't think I can top it but how would you change the system to make it more like that
1: I get in trouble when I say stuff like this but one (laughs) of the things that I would really like to do is to abolish the MLIS and not necessarily not completely abolish the MLIS but there are people I, and I, when I was in undergraduate school, I I, I partly worked my way through uh, undergraduate school by working in a library. Mm-hmm. And there were people who were, they would be, if they were in Canada, they would be called library technicians, but they were library assistants, and you didn't need like a special degree or a special you know, diploma or anything to do it. But these are people who either, they might not have gone to university even, but even the ones who had gone to university, they did not have a master's degree but they had been working in the library and supervisory capacity for in some cases, decades (plural), mm-hmm. um, but because they did not have the, the the approved stamp, they couldn't go any higher. Even when you know people who did have the stamp of approval or who had a PhD would go to these people because they were well-known problem solvers, and everybody trusted their you know their trusted their thoughts and they trusted their um, their uh, recommendations and what have you. But because for whatever reason either by choice or because or by circumstance, they didn't have that master's degree. They couldn't be a librarian. And that to me, because when I look at the people, especially in Atlanta, but even here in Vancouver, when you see the people, the stratification amongst people of color who work in libraries versus white people who work in libraries, all the people of color are almost all in the non-professional class. And they've been working there for a very, very long time. And they might be able to be a supervisor, but they'll never be a librarian. And certain perks come with, with that librarian title. And the only, one way that we can make sure that we can start to open things up a little bit is to say, hey, so-and-so doesn't necessarily have a master's degree, but she's been working here and she knows this system better than everybody else. Why can't we just have her be a librarian? Somebody's at my door.
0: <laughs> I did not order you a pizza or anything. Yeah, um, <laughs> if you need you... to go, we can, uh, we can wrap up.
1: Okay. I just want to go real quick and see who it is. Is that all right? Or do you want to just wrap up? I mean, I, I feel like we are I think we're on the
0: trajectory toward wrapping up and I'm, also, okay. I'm not quite sure how to edit out things on YouTube. So, um, let's wrap up. Um,
1: but yeah, that's just one way I think that, Um, you can, you know, start looking at people who have been working in libraries for long periods of time and look at the job descriptions and the job responsibilities and the things that are necessarily, you know, the things that have been set aside for people with a master's degree, start giving some of those things to people who have been working here for a long time, who you trust. Um, and I know some people will say, well, that contributes to the deprofessionalization of the profession. So be it. If it means that we're getting, you know, different people into the field. I'm, I'm kind of all for that.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being on the show and telling us how to break and remake the world in better ways with uh, <laughs> with policy and, and technology and all of that. I'm so excited that you got to be my first guest. I'm, I'm oh, one thank one. you. An awesome way to kick things off. Um, and uh, and I encourage everyone who's watching this video who can be in Vancouver to go watch Cecily's keynote because it'll be awesome. And Chris. And Chris, because that'll be awesome too. Um, Okay. Have a great rest of your evening. And thanks for talking. Thank you. Bye.